So in the early 1900s, there was the big push for the cattle industry, and they pushed west, right, into the Mississippi Valley and farther west. So there was a big tag in the late 1800s to early 1900s to get as many wolf pelts as you could. You can get as many as you want. So that wiped out, I would say, about 85 to 90 percent of the wild gray wolf population in the United States by about 1930 or so. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Gotta put up the first comment. Of course, so these are important things. Got started. Hey guys, welcome <laughs> what do you to... mean? It was a band. But why that has anything to do with us? No, it never does. Okay, thanks for making my uh, intro so awesome. Hey guys, I messed that up, huh? We can edit that out. Okay. Hey guys, times three. <laughs> welcome to From the Ground Up podcast. I feel like we should say our names in this more. I mean, obviously. You found our page, but let's, I don't know. I'm Melissa. This is Joe Fallon from Port City Pythons and Melissa Davis. Okay. <laughs> um, Tonight is our second to last episode of the year. What? I know. So we are going to take off, what does it end up? It ends up being 23rd, the 23rd. And the 30th. Yes, and the 30th is my birthday, and the 23rd is... The eve of the eve of Jesus's birthday. No lies, but let's not get into that. <laughs> I don't know semantics. No truths. Oh well, uh, nah, whatever. Sorry. Wow, we're polarizing the audience right now. <laughs> um, other things to talk about our podcast. <laughs> so obviously, it is cold out, and we are not shipping any snakes right now. But we are selling T-shirts as always. And if we do our job and get our Maryland reptile thing, again, we will be at the Baltimore Repticon <laughs> in the middle of January. Also, yes. I realized we never um, like said how awesome the Gettysburg show was for being its first show. Um, we got in there. We had ample amount of space. The lighting was great. They definitely got so many people through the door for our first show. They gave the vendors like free pizza. And they like came and checked to make sure everyone was okay. Um, so obviously I'm super late to saying that because it was like a month ago mm-hmm. now, but just want to make sure I got that out there. No vegan options for the pizza. Snake people, vegans, <laughs> don't know. No, yeah, how much so we didn't have we didn't have is, <laughs> um that often, but uh, um, shoot, what was I getting ready to say? Um, I guess that's it for us, right? Yeah, and there's a big balloon bearded dragon at the show. I feel like I need to say that. I don't know why. Okay. There's also like hotels and stuff like that. And I think that's why a lot of vendors liked it. It was really nice to just get out there and go to a show that's not very far away from Philly, but very much outside of our realm, our normal realm. Okay. That was our first time being at Gettysburg. Other than that, poorcitypythons.com if you want to check out merch and stuff that we have available. Yes. Also, send us your stickers if you want to be featured in the video version of these podcasts, unless you're Austin and you only (laughs) get half because Joe cut you off. Sorry, Austin. But we also have Tom, who we saw at the Gettysburg show. Yes, he's up there. He was right behind us. Um, Okay. 
So right. today's guest. <laughs> Why do you got to get so announcery? Because I like doing that. It's suspense. <laughs> so you may have seen him playing with all types of crazy animals, whether it be wolves, raccoons, uh, reptiles, kind of all sorts of animals. Today's guest is Tony Seiler. And Tony, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Of course. So can you get us started in kind of how you got started and what made you get into uh, the love for animals in general? Yeah. Um, so I've always loved animals growing up. Uh, my parents were pretty normal, having only dogs and cats, but I've always wanted like more. Um, so getting out on my own into college and everything, I got to buy my first snake. It was a little baby corn snake. And that's re- really uh, spiraled me into the animal world. So um, I am nine years um, reptile owners. Uh, I have been working with wolves for almost four years now, be four years next month. Uh, these gray wolves at a facility. And um, for just over about a year now, I have been other exotic animals like the raccoons he mentioned. Um, and uh, as I say, bobcat and we got groundhogs, we got native species and exotic species. So pretty well-rounded and everything. <laughs> That's a lot of fun. Where do you live? <laughs> I am located in Louisville, Kentucky right now. Uh, my hometown is in Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay. Oh, shout out Ryan Cox in the yeah, chat from Louisville as well. There. Oh, there you go. Definitely. Yeah, so what what kind of uh, drew you to wolves? I mean, there must be an awesome facility there. Yes. So, um, like I said, I've gotten, grown up lugging animals of all sorts, but the ones I've always been really, um, I guess, connected to are like the misunderstood animals. So anything from like wolves or sharks or snakes or spiders, you know, all the ones that Hollywood like demonizes and and makes you know monster movies out of right mm-hmm. so i've always liked wolves uh in general they've always i've always loved dogs i'm a big dog person so um wolves have always been a real thing for me so about six years ago i actually went to this facility and you can actually go in and interact uh for a donation which covers the cost of the food um and then i did that twice and the second time there i'm like i had to be a part of this so I grabbed a volunteer application. I've been educating about uh, gray wolf conservation uh, ever since. Okay, so <laughs> interacting with a wolf <laughs> yes. and going from loving dogs to interacting with a wolf, I feel like there's like a step in between where you need to know the ropes. Well, I'm also like, <laughs> do they just let anyone come in there? And Definitely. That's wow. crazy. You as a guest, you can come to our facility. We, um, You would interact with people-friendly wolves that we have um, actually bred, born, and raised ourselves. Um, we don't breed them countlessly. You know, We do it every three to five years. But as a interaction, as socialization and bottle feeding, um, people-friendly, meaning they're not like going to be aggressive, but they're just not going to run away from you because that's what wolves do in general. They're terrified of people and they run away. So these wolves actually like attention because, you know, they want their butt scratches. They want their tummies rubbed, all that stuff like a normal dog would um, because they like it. Are there any precautions that you have to take with a wolf that you don't have to take with a dog? Um, you, <laughs> definitely like question. come to you. Uh, you know, we, we educate everybody that comes there to, um, you know, we tell you the ropes, basically, ground rules and regulations about it. Um, there's a there's a waiver you sign. Uh, we're definitely monitored by the USDA, Fish and Wildlife, all these you know acronym places for safety and conservation and humane you know um, work with these animals. 
and uh, and that we're not like breeding and selling on radar, which we don't do. Uh, so they were heavily monitored. So there's a waiver that you write down or you sign and read, and it sounds a lot scarier than it really is, but these animals are very, very friendly. And otherwise, I mean, there's two of us, two of us volunteers that lead the interactions anyway, and we know these wolves. So we know what, if they are getting like a little angsty or they're getting a little grumpy, we know what to do. And so there's never a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and so what is a typical day as far as like an interaction? How does that go from your perspective? From my perspective, um, ever since, so the wolves that our youngest wolves that we have, I guess now are three years of age. So we got really popular over three years ago when they were all born. Everybody wants to pet a wolf puppy. That was the biggest thing. And we had more than we planned um, accidentally. So we expected four to seven, pretty normal in a litter. Uh, we had two litters. One was nine and one was 11. Wow. So those were, yeah, there was 20 babies born within five days of each other. And we. And do they have a similar lifespan to say like dogs? Are you just going to compare them to wrong? dogs? Every, oh, yes. Is all your question going to be this to dogs? I have a dog. <laughs> um, yeah, you would say they're probably same size or same lifespan as like a large dog breed. Um, in the wild, it's anywhere between three and seven, um, seven being a really old, lucky wolf. Um, we can double that in captivity. Uh, most of the wolves get between 10 and 13. But that is an old breeding wolf then or pair. Yes, that is. And one of our males was 11 at the time. And he's like, I'll continue my bloodline now. We're like, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the males are typically the confident ones in all species kind of across the board as far as. Well, or competently breeding age longer. Okay. <laughs> Fertile longer? Is that what I meant? <laughs> You'd be surprised. Actually, the female alpha is the one that sh- um, she, or actually has all the rules. Uh, really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> In the, she's the alpha. So we like to joke around that the alpha male controls the pack, but the alpha female controls the alpha male. So, okay. One okay. out for the ladies there. <laughs> And how does that work out in captivity between, you know, having a pack? Um, it is heavily based on uh, personality. So you don't have to be the biggest and strongest wolf to be um, the alpha. It's usually the smartest one or the one that just has a very dominating um, mentality over others that might be a little more submissive or or, do- or uh, friendly, for lack of a better term. Um, and we don't have any more than maybe four in a pack. Um in one of our larger areas, we have smaller areas that are just like doubles. So they're both an alpha because it's the only two in there. Um, there's always, there's no lone wolves at all. We always have them with their, their mates or their um, partner. So, so uh, if they're all, oh, sorry, you go, keep going. <laughs> if they're always together, how do you can, and you said earlier that you only breed every three to five years. How are you controlling that breeding? Right. Um, we do control breeding by spank females and uh, just vasectomizing males. Uh, we do not fully neuter males because they still have to produce testosterone to be of worth to the females. Otherwise, they get, yeah, in the wild, they'd be kicked out or, or pushed down in the um, hierarchy. Uh, so, and another male that can actually produce would be able to one to take that alpha role. Oh, wow. So how are you determining like when to, are you doing that after they breed and then the, the next three years will be someone else or how are you determining when to do that? Yeah. Um, so we do have like um, a planned breeding um, 
pairs here and there. Right now, there's no, we don't want any babies where our capacity. So <laughs> that are intact are not with each other at all. Um, we can always, if it's like the doubles, we can always exchange the females or the males with each other. Female and a male always generally get along. Um, two females are okay. Maybe one will take over the alpha role, but two males will, if they have that alpha mentality, they're going to fight and it's not going to be pretty. Um, so we generally um, definitely watch how they are, but we control them like every year, uh, make sure there's nobody intact with each other at the time. And right now there's nobody intact and nobody can breed. And what is it like taking care of babies? Is there anything special that you have to do? Have you been around for that? I have. Um, actually, right when I started, it was about four months in when the pups were all born. And I got to help bottle feed. Um, we call them little wolf cubs. They look like little little fuzzy bears um, when they're born. Little short little snouts and everything. And, and you talk about puppy breath for dogs. It's like ten times worse for wolves. It's, it's the nasty smell ever. <laughs> um, but it's adorable. I mean, it's a lot of work. Um, I was not a full-time bottle feeder. So I know the more experienced bottle feeders, basically you feed every two hours and you clean them every four hours after they, you know, they use the bathroom. So it's exhausting, but it's definitely. Wow. And is there like a commercially available, you know, mixture for zoos or something that you're feeding them in the bottle? Oh, yes. Um, so we actually work with a few other facilities across the, the United States. Um, we do breed and we'll donate a litter here and there. Um, we've done that several times in the past. One of the recent ones was to Wolf Hollow in Ipswich, Massachusetts. Um, but we work with Wolf Park, which is in northern Indiana. So they do conservation education and they actually do a reintroduction into the upper peninsula uh, of Michigan. So that's they're doing a lot. But we worked with them, Purdue University, um, and there are students in the Animal dietary, animal sciences um, degrees actually for one of their um, thesis actually created a formula for us to use for our wolf pups. So it's, I, I couldn't tell you what the <laughs> bad, <laughs> but it's a bunch of milk and some meat stuff. And yeah, I don't, I don't even know. <laughs> Have you ever tasted it? <laughs> I've not tasted that one. No, no. I don't that one. You notice he said that one. So. so you've tasted some other ones. Um, I have. So we did use a different formula for um, because I've used. I forget exactly what they called it. It's like the form that you get from the store. We use that just for a little bit when it ran out. And I mean, I've tasted that one. That's what you use for puppies. Um, I couldn't remember the brand offhand. Um, I've had, you know, I've given their worming medication, which is an oral, and I've had one of the wolves sneeze the back out of their mouth into my mouth. <laughs> it's like bananas, but <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's disgusting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we get a whole bunch of stuff all over us when we um, interact and we play with our wolves. So, <laughs> Are they mess like they messy or do they like, do they drool? They don't drool, no. Um, in the summertime, they might look like they're drooling a lot because they can only um, only sweat through their um, nose and mouth. They can't sweat even like dogs can when they have the oil glands, which gives dogs that uh, wet dog smell. Wolves don't get that. So they can't even like release any heat from their actual body. It's all through their nose and mouth. So does, that, does that give you any problems in the summertime? They're just a lot more lethargic. Um 
unfortunately, that's when most people want to come out and see the wolves because it feels mm. rough, right? But I mean, these wolves, it's if it gets above 85, 90 degrees, we don't even open because it's not fair to our animals. Um, it's too hot. Is there some type of like indoor area that they could cool down or some type of area that they cool down in? Unfortunately not. Uh, we are a nonprofit, so um, we do get donations. Most, I mean, I would say 95% of it goes back to food, just to feed. We do have okay. 40 wolves um, and three foxes. And uh, it's, I mean, there's a, lot, there's a lot of mouths to eat or feed. So it's uh, a lot of money goes just to their eating and well, uh, well-being. But we do like fill in. We got these big tubs. Um, we flip in the wintertime, so it's like a stage, but we flip them back over and we fill, fill them up with water. So that'll be like their pool. So they jump in there often to cool down. And we'll give them like big chunks of ice to, um, you know, with a hint of Kool Aid or something to finish the day. So. Oh my gosh. Oh, so is that so really cute. like a thing to, uh, to entice them? Yeah, yeah. You need yeah. like something yeah. sugary? Kool Aid. Just a little bit. Yeah, just a little hint of Kool Aid. Everybody loves Kool Aid. Every thing. <laughs> Mother Nature. So, and I, I kind of want to bring it back just for a second. It's like the, the nursing, will the pups ever take to the mother, or is it always going to be you bottle feeding? Um, just because of how we work now, uh, we want them to be socialized by us. So they are, like I said, people friendly, maybe not aggressive, people, but they will, they'll come up. Us. So that's mainly for veterinarian purposes. So our vets can see them if need be, <clears throat> but also that we can do these interactions. Um, hopefully, we'll want to do uh, we want to have more packs um, or or bigger packs uh, eventually in the future, so more people can see more wolves and stuff. Um, if we let the mothers raise them themselves, then um, the wolves they basically stay wolf. They don't really stay. They don't go people friendly. They if we go into their enclosure, they'll be on the opposite enclosure the entire time. They won't come up to us then. So that's why we do it. And as far as like socialization, does that, where does that put you as far as when you do produce babies and you have these kind of like hand raised babies? I mean, what kind of facilities are they sold to or can they be sold to from there? Uh, we don't sell any wolves offhand, but we'll do the donating um, to reputable. Uh, facilities and we've learned in the past there's a lot of non-reputable places out there and people or places that um will say they're a, a sanctuary but they're really just keeping them in their house stuff like mm. that that's that's happened before with us um there's been an actual zoo that has taken two of our wolves uh or wolves before and um they bred the female every single year since and that female seven so we're just like never going to work with you again but what can you do you can't really do much about it so we're now in in the wild i'm assuming <clears throat> that those females are breeding every year in the wild yeah the alpha female will and that's um that she's the only one that breeds um the other females are either uh subordinate so you know the, you got the alphas there's the alpha pair and then you got betas uh, subordinate wolves, and then you got omegas uh, in a pack. So the alpha female and the alpha male are the only two that actually breed because they're going to be the strongest, the smartest um, wolves, potentially. Um, the other ones all help with hunts. And then the omegas, the females that don't go out and hunt, after the alpha female actually runs out of uh, milk within 9 to 12 days or so, this, the omega females actually lactate, and they raise the pups um, from then on. 
What? <laughs> so they have the ability to lactate without having produced animals. Yep. But only the omegas. Only the omegas. Uh, it, technically, some of the you know beta females might do it too, but those are the ones that are going to be more on the round for the hunts. <clears throat> That's so interesting. I want to know the science behind. Like in my head, you can only lactate, you know, when you. Well, it's like our mice. You don't. I guess you don't see the breeding mice so much because you're so I freaked out by them. But <laughs> but one one female lays, and then I typically have like three females in there. Then the other two will come and nurse with that female, and they'll all take care of it together. So I think that happens with mammals. I think even I like uh, only if two females are too close and they sink they up. eat each other. <laughs> No, no, I don't know. Talk about eating, like a mom eating her kids or stuff. Yeah, she can do that too. Yeah, but. so, okay, they got both sides. They'll, all, they'll help each other feed and then eat them. Okay. Rodents do. <laughs> <laughs> Wolves don't. <laughs> um, so, how early into their life, like, can you guys get a sense of, like, who you think's going to be the Omega, who you think's going to be that Alpha? Or does it matter to even let that sort itself out? I mean, right. Not that it matters, but I'm just saying, like, do you guys get an, have an idea? Yeah, definitely. Um, so when all the pups, and we had, let's say, this round of basically, we had 20, one passed away um, a day or two after birth that happens. Um, one we donated to a facility out in California, Apex Protection Project. Uh, but the original 18, uh, we had them all in one of our larger enclosures. And how what we would do to kind of figure that out, who would be alphas to omegas and whatnot, is um, when we do feed, uh, we do get deer from hunters. Um, so we'll actually take and, and we process it. So big five-gallon bucket full of deer meat, basically. So we slide that out and put it on the ground. And then we watch uh, which, you know, and these are um, even pups. So when the wolves are even puppies, they'll even fight each other off for who gets what meat first. And the ones that fight the others off and the ones um, will be the alphas primarily. And then the ones that kind of, you know, hide off in weights are going to be lower in the, the totem pole, the omegas. So that's, you can see that within four months of life. And is that important to how you, you know, as a keeper can manipulate the herd to do what you want it to do? Yeah, yeah, it is. Just because we don't want to have... Um, a whole uh, group of like omegas and then a whole group of alphas because those alpha wolves are going to be a little more uh, problematic. They'll be more bickering in their pack as they grow more um, on each other. And so we just wanted to make it all even. So we have, you know, the hierarchies set because when the hierarchies are set and they're good, then, you know, all is happy. <laughs> and what is um, on the wolf department um what <laughs> that sounds stupid <laughs> you're fun i don't know why it's a department oh my god sorry sorry keep going yeah so when it comes to wolves are people usually tentative when they're coming up to these experiences oh we have people all across the board um there's a lot of people that like wolves in the world and then there's a lot who have grown up and it's I'm not trying to be like the younger generation versus older generation, but a lot of the ones that seem more hesitant with the interaction or coming to see these animals seem to be older generations just because of, um, you know, they, they grew up maybe hating these animals if they come from areas where these are present in the wild or um, movies and such. Um, like, what was that one with Liam Neeson? Um, the Grey. Like, that's, I don't know if you guys have seen that before. but no. that, entirely wrong with what wolves do isn't uh, the reverent 
with a wolf, too. Mm, he's out in the snow. I don't know. Never mind. That's keep going. Air. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but like the younger generation is a little more open um, with, you know, acknowledging that these animals are um, their family units. They just want to survive. They're highly intelligent. And um, they're, I mean, people that are younger seem to be more active. They're like, oh, my God, they're adorable. I want to see them. So that's always really nice to see. And how do you, because, I mean, obviously these are still wolves. I mean, how do you get a point like the cross that you can't, I mean, it's still a wolf and you can't, like, out in the wild, these are crazy apex predators. Yeah. I mean, how do you build that respect and at the same time have, like, them cuddling with them and playing with them <laughs> we definitely uh explained that these wolves are not like the ones you find in the wild these ones had been born and raised in human captive care um so they were bottle fed by us we are their caregivers we are like really cool step you know brothers and sisters i don't know we're not like mom <laughs> they don't see us as part of their pack still we're just really we're like the cool neighbors that come to see them every once in a while um but like in the wild, you know, wolves in general, they're very elusive animals. They can smell us two miles away um, and they turn tail in the other direction. You know, these guys, you say apex predators, technically we are the apex predators then. Mm. And they fear that. Um, so that's why they're always, they stay away from us. <laughs> and just the, the natural range of the wolf, I mean, where is it now as far as the conservation efforts and everything going on? And then what is, was the range historically, do you know? Uh, historically, yes. There were wolves in 49 out of the 50 states. Um, there were no Hawaiian wolves. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, wolves are found in all 40, uh, 49, or 40 contiguous. Alaska still has the largest um, population of wolves up there. Um, I can't give you direct numbers because they always dwindle and they're always they're elusive. Fluctuating. Right? Uh, yeah, they're fluctuating all the time. Um, range right now, uh, Upper Peninsula, um, all the all the states all across the northern that border Canada, they go in and out of their states, and then they're protected in Yellowstone uh, and Yosemite and um, their surrounding states, uh, all the way down to even they've been seen in Northern California too. So Northern California, Northern uh, Nevada, and kind of like up into Montana, like take that angle. Um, but yeah, they were everywhere before. Florida wouldn't have been too hot. There are um, subspecies of wolves that um, were better in heat than the ones that you primarily think about. Mm -hmm. um, there are the Mexican gray wolves. They're a lot smaller. Um, their fur coats weren't as thick, and they were the mainly the ones that you'd see um, they were in Central America as well as Texas. They kind of dwindled over in Mississippi and Alabama, and they went kind of in the desert areas of Arizona and whatnot. Um, and, I mean, they went all the way to Florida. Yeah, there were wolves everywhere. Um, now, they were probably um, shot out, you know, way before other areas, mm -hmm. especially, like, for uh, the tri-state area from me, Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana. There hasn't been uh, a wild wolf. Um, in the wild for over a hundred years now. Wow. <laughs> and was that just hunting? I mean, is it possible for us to literally just hunt something to almost extinction like that? Yeah. Um, so in the early 1900s, there was the big push for the cattle, um, cattle industry, and they pushed west, right, into the Mississippi Valley and farther west. 
So there was a big tag in the late 1800s to early 1900s to get as many wolf pelts as you could. You can get as many as you want. So that wiped out, I would say, about 85 to 90% of the wild gray wolf population in the United States by about eight, uh, 1930 or so. Mm. They were basically hunted into the um, the woodlands and the mountains of like the Rockies, basically. So it was a, it was a hard push. And, and um, the same, basically the same people who uh, drove the bison to extinction or the buffalo, you know, near extinction? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Um, those smaller animals were able to, since those wolves, those apex predators were um, kind of out of the equation. A lot of those smaller mammals really took to um, the the breeding and everything. So raccoons proliferated. Um, coyotes were actually desert. They were desert canines. They were not seen around in, um, I guess, the Midwest uh, in the eastern border and everything up until the early 1900s. Um, so just because we're talking about it, oh, you yeah. just talked about, yeah, I didn't know you did that. that's cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like uh, it was like coyotes were primarily found in um, Utah, Arizona, Southern California, Nevada. But with the um, gray wolves hunted out, they were able to reproduce. Um, and they are, like you said, um, they're very invasive and um, they're they're everywhere. They're overpopulated. <laughs> Um, so we have a couple questions in the chat, a couple questions in the chat building up. I want to get yeah. to those, yes, go for um, but don't let us forget our questions that I know I have like six in my brain that I'm also trying not to forget. Go ahead. Um, but the first question in the chat is kind of like your personal opinion. Mm-hmm. Dang it. And now I can't find it. Personal opinions. Aren't those fun? And you can definitely like, you know, say no, if it's too personal opinion, but. Here it is. So Darren asks, how does he feel about hybrids being sold as pets, like the wolf dog hybrids? Right. That's a good question. Personal opinion. I see. um, See, this is why our facility started. Um, 22 years ago, the owners of Wolf Creek Habitat, um, they started rescuing hybrids from shelters that um, their shelters were otherwise going to euthanize these wolf dog hybrids because they are extremely... um, unpredictable animals so hybridization in the genetic world creates a bigger stronger faster animal prettier you're thinking birds and fish um so we do have one wolf dog hybrid um he is our last one because we are um, unable to keep them anymore which is fine because wolves are a lot easier um he actually is a good wolf dog you might get bad ones you might get good ones now personal ownership um do your research I mean, I know people that have uh, done their research have wolf dog owner or have wolf dogs as pets, and they're doing everything right. You know, they keep them outdoors. Uh, the, their fences are eight feet tall. Um, they feed them raw meats. You know, these these guys, they can't get um, the normal canine food that you get at the store because they're half wolf. You don't digest all the extra grains and soy and byproducts that are in a lot of dog food, unfortunately. Um, but then I see some people who keep them inside of their um, apartments and they're like, oh, my wolf dog just ate my table. My, again. I'm like, well, that's why, why do you have them in your apartment? That's, that's not good. Um, so it's really, you need the spacing, you need the correct diet. Um, and uh, they're not going to be easy. They are not easy animals. They're bigger uh, than wolves are. And I mean, they could be the same size or bigger. And um, you can't just have one because these guys, they're pack animals. They need a buddy 
24-7. If you're not going to be that buddy to them, um, aka, well, you probably have to work, right? So you're not going to be with them all the time. So, uh, of course, when people get these and they're tearing, tearing up their house and everything, and they're like, why is this happening? I need to get rid of it. We're like, well, if you get another one, they won't be tearing it up as much. <laughs> but it could happen. So. Wow. Yeah, that's not what I would want. Yeah. 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 Just get yourself a husky. Get yourself <laughs> incredibly difficult anyway. Um, a, nor- or a, a Malamute, a Northern Inuit, like the dogs in Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> dogs <laughs> there's a lot of other options basically there's a lot of other options <laughs> yeah for sure and we also had another question from the chat mm-hmm. okay um so kind of a question do they howl or at certain time like moments like the full you know do they howl a lot and obviously society tells us oh wolves howl at the moon right um they do howl a lot um, there are times where uh, us volunteers will be doing an event, uh, so it's like an all weekend thing. So we'll camp out, right? And uh, we don't sleep. We don't sleep. They howl like every two hours. They howl. Um, so wolves are crepuscular. It's, they're most active during dawn and dusk, and they actually evolved following deer species like moose, elk, bison. Those are also dawn and dusk. So at night, you'd think that they'd sleep right now. <laughs> They, they'll sleep for like two hours and then they'll get up and be all howling. So that's basically what we sleep. Um, so wolves don't howl at the full moon. That is a common myth. Um, that was basically a white settler's myth when us, um, when the white man was going into the Northern Americas, you know, at the time, uh, we were still able to uh, work at night during a full moon because it's still really bright, you know, very little light pollution in the 1600s, whenever that was. Um, <laughs> So we were to work at night, and you might hear the wolves howling, so they just put it together. Um, it's not like they howl at the full moon. I mean, there's full moon, they're howling. Okay. Um, <laughs> but they'll howl for um, mainly to find each other after a hunt, um, if they get scattered around. Uh, their hunting grounds, when they're hunting season or something, they could be four or five miles away from each other at that point. They're like, well, where's everybody? Hello. <laughs> That's what the howling is. Um They'll uh, celebrate puppies. They'll um, ward off other packs or other potential um, threats like bears or humans. Um, they have a different pitches, so it sounds like there's more than X amount of wolves that are actually there, which is kind of cool. Um, so, like, five wolves will have a different pitches, and it makes it sound like there's 20. Um, wow. And then they're, uh, and they'll have to actually mourn the death of pack members, too. Mm. So, and I've actually personally heard that. And that was literally the saddest sound I've ever heard about. Their howls are different depending on. Different oh, wow. And you can like feel it. It's really, it's really. And are you in a rural area or? Um, for where the facility is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty rural. It's that a thing like people having wolves howling in their backyard all the time. There are neighbors, yeah, but they, all the neighbors know it. They all the neighbors really enjoy it and stuff. So, yeah, awesome. yeah, that's really cool. Um, the next chat question was from KB's An Amazing House. Um, can you guys provide a small snapshot of a financial commitment when dealing with the Wolf Project? Ooh, <laughs> like what the cost would be to do like a wolf. Sanctuary? I don't know. That's what I'm assuming he's talking about. Yeah, that's hard. It seems like uh, there's a lot of factors that would be involved. Like that go into it. Very expensive. I would assume very expensive. 
Um, yeah. So, like I said, the so um, just for general thought, um, the donation. So, if you were a person coming to see the wolves, uh, the donation. Uh, the fee donation, because we're nonprofits, with the donation is $50, but you get to see uh, a dozen wolves, and it takes about an hour to get through it all. Um, and it covers the cost of just their food. So um, just, and we'll get maybe on a good weekend, maybe 100 people through Saturday and Sundays, because it's the only time we're open um, to the public. And um, just, I guess, take that money. But then you have to also think of financially. Um, maintenance for the uh, enclosures. So wolves are very destructive. Um, they like to eat fences and we sometimes have to replace these fences. Um, there is, um, thankfully we're actually on a creek. So we actually pump water from the creek and lightly um, filter it just to get parasite, uh, parasitic stuff out. Um, and then that's the running water. So that's actually at least um, very helpful. Um, but and, like we have a gift shop and stuff, but I mean, we've been around for 22 years uh, financially. I've only been around for four years, so I can barely even scratch the surface of the uh, financials that we put into the actual facility. I know it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it just like amazes me how a nonprofit, I mean, it's hard enough to to run a business for profit, but when it comes to being a nonprofit and having to deal with everything and with the animals on top of it, it's just, yeah, it's wild. And this thing that, um, people can get like a once in a lifetime experience for a pretty small fee right. and it also goes to help yeah. feed the wolves is pretty awesome. Definitely. Definitely. And I know James, James Lewis in the chat was asking a bunch about uh, which species of wolves. Is it a gray wolf? Is it a red wolf? Uh, what are you working with? These, so all of our animals are gray wolves. Um, they are a mixed subspecies of Arctic and timber gray wolves. So they're the, some of the larger subspecies of the gray wolf that you'll find in the world. So what is the difference between an Arctic and a timber wolf? Uh, geographically, those two subspecies would never find each other. Um, you'll get, um, so the timber wolves are primarily the wolves that you'll find out west of Yellowstone. Um, in the latitude, that is where they're found. Now, if you go farther north um, in Canada, you'll get still timber wolves, but the farther up in Canada you get, You'll find maybe more of the um, Arctic wolves starting when you're getting into more of the, the tundra areas. You know, you're, you're leaving the forest. They're big um, frosted areas of land where there's not a lot of trees. Um, farther north, then you'll find the tundra wolves, too. So that's just they're all gray wolves. But depending on where they're found um, are different subspecies. Um, like I said, the Mexican gray wolves earlier, they were found a lot farther south. They were smaller, um, smaller um fur coat, you know, not as large fur coat, um, but the farther north, the bigger the wolves are, and the bigger their coats are. And so the timber wolf, was that the one that pretty much inhabited most of the United States? Yeah, primarily, yeah. The timber wolves, and then the you get the Mexican gray wolves. Awesome. So last And are there, I'll go for it. There's one more from the chat. Yes, thank you. And it's Kyle, so you have to. Um, oh, I just noticed this picture. Sorry, that made me laugh. Um, so you have you've spoken about the difference in wolves we have now versus what we used to have. Like, can you talk? Or he asked, have you spoken about like what has their change been over time? You talked about you know their range and how that's changed, but like as far as their size and stuff and habits. Um, so everybody has heard of um, dire wolf, right? 
So that was one of the um, a very popular subs or subspecies of, I guess, gray wolf. I, I mean, the gray wolf stemmed from them, so you can't really call them a gray wolf because they were their own species technically. But size comparison, those animals were anywhere from two hundred to two hundred fifty pounds. Um, I mean, that was the age of the uh, the large fauna. So you know, those slots that were back then are the size of Cadillacs or the size of beetles. Um, you have bully mammoths and the saber toothed cats, right? Those are all a lot larger than the animals that we have, you know, nowadays in our era. Um, so since you know the ice ages when all those animals kind of came about, animals are getting smaller. Um, Though I know that there are like our animals that we have at our facility, we have males that reach 150. Uh, the females, some of them have reached 110 to 120. Um, but like, and then we have uh, one of our little runs is like 60 pounds, mm. um, and she's she's got attitude to adjust for that. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess that what kind of question was there. I think that sounds like to me. Yeah, and then and then Darren kind of asked about say that that runt female that you have. I mean, is would that girl be at risk of being kicked out of the pack or anything like that? Yeah, um, when she was born, she was one third the size of the other pups, and she was like not growing. Um, when she was pushing maybe ten pounds, her brothers and sisters were pushing forty. Um, so she would not have survived in the wild. Um, even in our care, we didn't think she was going to survive because she just wasn't growing. She wasn't taking a bottle, so we had to syringe feed her. Um, so we actually had to kind of force the food into her. Um, but like I said, as she she finally hit some type of little like spurt, where she's like, "Oh, I want to survive," and then you know, be sassy and uh, entitled because we spoiled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and is that something that that animal like goes on to just educate for the rest of its life, or? You know, what can you do with an animal that starts off? Because as like someone who's looking to breed or something with snakes or reptiles, you get a runt and you're like, eh, you know, you don't know if they'll create more problems sure. later. Right. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, with uh, her name's Tala. So thankfully with Tala, she is happy and healthy. She's just smaller. Um, but we like to kind of show a comparison of like, um, you know, there are the runts in the world. You can get runt cats, runt dogs, runt uh, reptiles. Right. And, and it happens in. Because of her size and everything, we educate that she would not have made it. She, you know, it is a pack, but it is a hard world. Um, because she wouldn't have really given enough to the pack, uh, the mother would have put her aside because she's like, "You're not gonna be worth it later." It's hard to say, but yeah, it's kind of how it is. You know, you have to be strong. Uh, you have to be, you know, willing to survive in the wild for wolves because not an easy life. <laughs> What do you think is harder, assist feeding a wolf or assist feeding a corn snake? <laughs> oh, I'll assist feed corn snakes for now. Yeah, okay. Snakes are pretty difficult. I've had to do that before, and it wasn't as bad as a wolf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just thinking of the teeth involved. I yeah. don't know. One's cuter, that's for sure. One's definitely cuter. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you're assist feeding, are they kind of like fighting you the whole time? Like, how does, yeah. They, and they, they do that, and then they'll nervous, like, poo on you, and you're just like, oh, that's great, and it's just a big old mess, and it's, yeah, it's, it's not fun. I mean, you can overpower it, you know, get it in, but, like, it's not fun. You know, they get real antsy and stuff, because they don't know what's going on. They're like, get off my face. Um, 
and, and snakes, uh, I can't formulate my words. In snakes, when there's a cyst feeding, a lot of times the consequence of that is regurging. Um, does that happen? I'm assuming that happens with the wolves too. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen it with our pups, the ones that um, I I worked with in bottle fed, but I'm sure like the others, I mean, that might be a, a, a common occurrence. I'm sure they get too much and then just like, Bleh. I mean, that's not, you know, unheard of ever in any, any part of the animal world. So. Right. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And now I know that wolves have come back in a large part in places like, say, where Kyle lives in Idaho, or like you said before, like a lot of the Rocky Mountains and places that are hard to get to, as well as um, someone in the chat even said that, you know, now they're having problems with too many wolves in some places in like the Pacific Northwest and stuff. Um, do you know what they're doing to aiding conservation to keep down populations sometime? And then also, are they um, are they bringing new animals in and kind of repopulating other areas? Um, as far as I know, there are some areas that um, there are problem wolves. And a lot of those wolves are um, elderly wolves that have been uh, shunned or kicked out of packs um, mm-hmm. because they're old, they're feeble, and the, that they, if they would have been like the alpha male beforehand, they stepped down, and now that alpha male is like, you need to leave because you're not helping us out. So a lot of them are lone wolves. Um, a lone wolf does not survive very long, so they do get desperate. And those are the ones that uh, primarily, if leads to desperity, um, they'll go after your cattle stock or something like that unfortunately because it's sometimes easy prey when you have that animal in a pen that they can't escape from right so um a lone wolf though is not going to take out a cow it's really unheard of just because that the cows are five times bigger than a wolf is right uh, so you more have to watch out for goats that, that would be the biggest thing that a, a wolf would want to get to it make be an easier kill i guess um, but wolves don't like to go anywhere near people. Um, so if they smell like a farm, they're going to smell the humans there, and they're probably not going to come up. Um, a lot of livestock kills and deaths have been blamed on wolves, but they were either um, mountain lions, um, other size um, cats, maybe bobcats, or coyotes. Coyotes. Um, coyotes are one of the canines that do kill for fun. Bobcats kill. Cats kill for fun. You know, that's just a general. <laughs> yep. <laughs> wolves don't kill for fun because it takes so much energy to get a kill. They're not going to waste it. So, um, so they're going to lie around like our wolves here, you know, um, they're going to, they lie around all day long and then they'll use that energy to say hi to us. That's pretty much it. And then they go back to lying all day long. They don't do a lot. <laughs> so that's not a situation where you'd have like a pack of wolves at this farm. Like we're going to take this thing down and they're <laughs> scheming and getting all the calves. And so it's usually just like one animal. It's usually one animal. Yeah. I mean, not, I'm not saying that you won't see a group of them, but a group of them aren't re- usually all that bold to still go for farm stock because, um, so they go for those lean meats in the wild. They go for the elk, moose, bison, the deer species. Um, those are lean meat. I don't know if you've ever had elk or venison, like as meat. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, cows are really fatty. Um, wolves don't eat pig. They absolutely will starve themselves before they go for a pig because they think that seems nasty. Um, sheep are just a bony cotton ball. They don't really want them. Um, so the goats are the closest thing. But um, I've like we've given. The, the local um, butcher in the, the town that Wolf Creek's at has donated meat that and went expired for humans, but the wolves still eat it. Um, they've had cow meat, 
but they've regurgitated all the fat that they ingest. Mm. So they can't digest it. So they don't really want to go for that. But in, if they're desperate, it might happen. They're going to eat. Mm-hmm. Right. So how are you typically sourcing diet? I mean, besides hunters, but that's only seasonal. I mean, how do you source a, a year-round diet? Um, so we do have uh, 24-7, 365. We do use a brand of kibble. Called, it's the Missouri brand. Um, it's a lot of what the AZA um, facilities use for their animals, um, their carnivores and herbivores. But we do get all the deer starting hunting season uh, in our area. It's the last week of September, I think. Uh, we get it all the way, and we get enough meat um, that actually lasts us until about April-ish, May, when the wolves stop eating meat because their diets change once the summer hits because they're not producing the coat. They don't want to eat. Eating equals energy. Energy is heat, and wolves don't like to be hot. Um, so, I mean, we'll go through, and we work with a number of the processor plants. That's where we get most of our deer. So we'll get the discards that the hunters don't want. So, I mean, collectively, we'll go through about 400 deer a year. With our 40 animals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was not the number I was expecting. But it's also like... When when our pups were going and growing in that first year, we went through almost 600 deer. <laughs> yeah. 600. And are you, are you typically feeding them like, you know... Is it in which way is it processed? Is it processed with all the bones down in it, or are you giving them some bones, or how does that work? They get um, all the bones that they get um, with meat on them. That they get it all. Um, wolves will eat. They eat bone. They go for the bone marrow. It's like a really, really good um, source of uh, protein, calcium, whatever is in bone marrow. Again, I don't remember, um, but it's good for them. It's like a fluoride for their teeth as well. And chewing bones is like um, toothbrush. So their teeth are very clean. Most of their lives. Um, no bad breath either. It's kind of nice. It's really nice. Um, but yeah, like the like the hunters, they'll donate and we get discards of um, skulls, the backbones, ribs, legs, pelvises, um, all that with the meat on it and everything like that. And is there any way um, special that you feed the animals or do you just throw in meat over to them? We just throw it in them. Yep, and the alpha pair. If there's more than the two, um, the alphas do eat first, and the other ones kind of wait. Um, they'll kind of raw at each other to get back. My turn first, you know that kind of stuff. But that's normal. I mean, like a lot of the roaring that you hear, people would come visit us, um, and you hear roaring. It's never at us, especially when we're in the enclosures. So mm-hmm. Like it's not you. They're just arguing with each other. Sounds worse than it really is. A lot of disciplining. A lot of bickering. I mean, they're roaring and they're wolves. It's going to sound very intimidating, right? But it's really not. And is that anything to where you have to make sure that certain ones get fed? Or they'll do it on their own. Does that happen on their own? Because they'll pretty much do it on their own. You know, we don't don't like, um, you know, trap a wolf over one area and let that one eat first or other because we don't want to take away from just that mentality of the hierarchy roles and everything like that. James Lewis asked if you ever do horse meat. Um, we actually one of the neighbors um lost a horse <laughs> something. I don't know what it was, but we did bring horse meat and they liked it. Some didn't, some did. So they're they're all picky eaters. Some people or some people, some of the wolves like the cow and some didn't. Um they're all very picky in general because that we we definitely spoil them. They're spoiled rotten. <laughs> Um, okay, kind of different 
subject. Well, not really. But so earlier before the podcast started, you told us that you are also you work at a vet hospital during the day. And I wanted to know how much has like working at that like informed what you do at the sanctuary. I mean, obviously you're not getting wolves into the vet to the hospital that often, but I'm just wondering like, is there any sort of crossover and like what you've learned there or seen there? Or anything like that? Um, not entirely. The vet hospital that I work at, uh, we do exotics, though, um, which is really cool because we'll get reptiles in, we'll get birds in, as well as your normal cats, dogs, bunnies, um, ferrets, uh, pigs. We've got pigs in. That's never fun. Uh, <laughs> they scream. Oh, <laughs> um, but uh, I've been some more of the, the kenneling, grooming areas, um, but I'll walk on floor with the vet techs and I've been learning more of the medical field-ish um, and what they do and, and more of the medications. Um, none of that really I can bring back to wolf because uh, they're very hardy animals anyway. Um, wolves don't really get sick. Um, they don't. They don't. They can't get um, topical parasites through. They can't get fleas, ticks, or lice. Um, we give them that warming medication I mentioned earlier that tastes like bananas. They don't get heartworm or any kind of GI worms or anything like that. Um, and we give them their shots. So they get like parvo and distemper. Um, we do not give wolves rabies shots, though. Um, it's a different strand from the canine rabies shot. And it has actually killed some of our wolf babies in the past. Um, and they're never going to be around dogs anyway we don't allow dogs on premises so there's really little to no exposure of rabies for the wolves i guess that's nice don't have to worry about you know medications and stuff like that too often and do you do they take in any type of like rehab situation or rescue situation wolf Wolf creek yeah Yeah. Um, we have uh, one of our recent rescues was three males and they came from quebec actually, um, in Canada. So we got them back in April and, um, they have to be pure wolves. That's the thing. We don't take in hybrids anymore per the USDA. And we're like, that's fine. They're hard to deal with. Um, there's plenty of other wolf dog sanctuaries out there, but we're wolf strict. Um, which uh, the owner, Kathy, she gets probably a dozen calls a week. Like, Hey, take in my wolf dog hybrid. (laughs) We can't. Um, so, um, I would say seven of our, 40 are rescue situations. So there's rescues where either facilities like the three boys that just came to us, um, new ownership of this animal park in Quebec where they didn't want the wolves anymore. So, and they were either going to go to a fur farm or to us. Mm. How it is in Canada. So we're like, yeah, bring them to us, please. So we were supposed to get them in February, um, but it took three months two or three months to actually get through all the paperwork and everything. Uh, customs was interesting. Um, I was just about to ask, what's the transportation process coming all the way from Canada? Yeah, that was, I think the drive was like 26 hours one way. So mm. that was something. But one of the customs agents actually saw us coming across the board. It's now a volunteer, so that's kind of funny. Um, Small world. She does come down all the time, but once a month she'll try to make the trip, which is really cool. Um, they got their selfies and everything with wolves. I don't know. You don't see that in the customs often. I understand. Uh, <laughs> um, but is um, that something that is that something that happens often between facilities? I mean, going from, I would think that if you're going to pick up something, it would be a it's lot easier Canada. to do it in the states <laughs> than get something from Canada. 
Yes, that was, if it would have been from the States, it would have been not, I mean, maybe a week worth of paperwork to get through and to get it done. Um, just it coming from another country, that was, and I've seen the paperwork style. It is literally like over 400 pages of like stuff that you're supposed to read and sign. And, and it, was, it was crazy. I'm like, I'm not reading this. <laughs> yeah, I can't even imagine because Kathy, the owner, they had to read it all and understand it all. So definitely a lot more difficult getting from a different country. And do you know if it's, is it legal to keep wolves in any states in the United States? Um, privately is a 100% wolf. You are unable, it is illegal to own them uh, privately. Now you have to be licensed as a, uh, as conservation, rehabilitation, or reintroduction facility um, under the uh, Fish and Wildlife, USDA, DOA, you know, all those acronym places um, to be able to own said animals. Now, you can own hybrids, and, and this is where it gets funny. Different states have different laws for that. Um, I know where I'm at in Kentucky, you cannot own even uh, 10% uh, wolf to 90% dog. Um, in Ohio, where I'm, when I'm born, um, there's laws depending on other paperwork, but like in in Indiana where our facility is, it's like Florida. You can own anything. <laughs> it's just it really is depending on the state. But there's not someone just with 100% wolves. That's very rare for you to be able to get the opportunity to get in contact with that animal. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if they have a 100% wolf, then um, they can get in a big a lot of trouble. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure. And for good reason. Um, Aaron in the chat earlier brought this up and it's something I kind of want to talk to um, you about also. So obviously, like people coming to this facility have not seen wolves very often. And also we are in a very social media centered world. Obviously, you do your own social media things, but how do you combat people who come in and want to, what's the word, like, over extra over overstep to get that side of selfie or something like that. Do you have those right. issues? I see like Tony to, on the internet like, taking pictures with wolves. I want to go like, take like go too far in the while they're at the facility. Have you ever had that happen? I mean, you can bring your own uh, phone or whatever and take your own pictures there if that's what you're asking. But like, um, if like people are to pick them up or you know when you're not there, I don't know how to. Phrase it like, do they just ever overstep the boundaries? Any guests to the facility? Um, no, most people are really respectful when they come. Um, the biggest thing with wolves is they don't like to be hugged, that is a dominant thing. Um, even your dog really doesn't like to be hugged, they just tolerate it because they love us, right? They're we are their person. Um, really, wolves don't really think, okay. yeah, like there's some dogs that like to be held and hugged and stuff, but that deep down in that canine brain, they're like, I hate this, um, but I'm tolerating this. Wolves just be like, Don't touch me, <laughs> who are you? And then they'll get up and walk away. That's what they do. If they don't like something that's happening, they're gonna get up and they're gonna walk away because that's how they are. They're very non confrontational animals, you know, they don't want to be aggressive, that's a waste of energy. So why would they want to? But, you know, yeah. Most but it seems like you guys have super tolerable animals. Yeah. They, yeah. Um, and also, I, for the most part, people understand when they come here that these are wolves, not dogs. So just the way you pet them is differently. Um, 
they are head shy for the most part, kind of like how your snakes, you need to try to pet the snake and they go like this. The wolves do that too. You have to go underneath their heads, scratch their necks, their chests, so they actually enjoy that. They love their armpit scratch. Um, you reaching over their heads, especially when they're on the ground, not up on a platform, and they're like, what are you doing? You know, they, they shy away from it because it's a dominating, it's a threatening thing, you know, just in general. So is it the wolf tolerating you? Or is the wolf, because uh, it seems like the wolf is always dominant over you. And it mm-hmm. seems like they're always kind of, or you want them to seem like they're always in control more so right. than you trying to control the animal. Right. And our wolves that are, um, that we bottle fed, that are in the interactions, they, they enjoy the interactions. So they'll come up, especially as volunteers, because, you know, we see them once a week, but they're always like, oh my God, you're here again. They go crazy. <laughs> You know, they jump up and they give me a hug and they're, I mean, I'm not a tall person, I'm like five, six, but they're taller than I am when they get on their hind legs. Um, and I mean, but then they'll go to the people, the guests and stuff, and they'll get their scratches and they, and they enjoy the, the attention that they get. Um, but they're like cats, you know, they'll go away for a little bit. Um, especially if they hear like a something fall in the corner of the enclosure or something like that, they'll go away and then they'll come back to us. You know, they're not like dogs where they want attention 24 seven. Right. And I guess let's go on to some of the, the, the other animals that you have on social media. Last one. Yeah. Go ahead. Last one. Um, how many volunteers are typically there at the facility on those Saturdays and Sundays? I would say every weekend we have a solid eight to 10 uh, regular volunteers, me being one of them. But on, um, on our list, there's probably 20, 25 of us total. Um, it's just some others live two, three, four hours away. I mean, I live two hours away, but I still make that. I'll be going there tomorrow as Tuesday. It's like maintenance day, but we get to see some of the non-interactive wolves that miss us, and I can't wait. Um, but um, the ones that people can't see, but we can see them. So um, those volunteers might not be able to make it out as often. So a solid of eight to 10, 12, 12 would be a really nice day of having because we do interactive groups and we'll do, if we have the people, we'll do three groups at a time. That's two volunteers per group, plus volunteers up on our like sky deck that we have that runs along the entire enclosure, the entire exhibit facility um, and people in the gift shop as well. So 12 would be definitely um, a good day, but we do hurt sometimes for volunteers that come out. Yeah. But you're, I mean, you're, I mean, you guys seem lucky to have a core group of people who are willing to travel. I mean, you're willing to travel that much to go and help out. Definitely. Is there any potential for this to become like a full-time thing for you? I mean... Or a career with wolves in general. Right. I know it's a nonprofit, so they obviously can't take on, you know, too many people. Um, But you're so dedicated. (laughs) Yeah. The only way that, I mean, it would be, be a career is if like some catastrophic happened and like I would take over, but that's not ever, that's never going to happen. Um, it's just volunteering. And I mean, we get rewarded with just having these animals really trust us. Um, they see us, you know, and they, they're overjoyed to see us. And that just makes me feel, I love having that connection with an animal that is demonized so well, but these animals are, are really just trying to survive. They just want to be you know, left alone in the wild and, and do their, their thing. And we do our thing. Um, so it's just, it's really cool to have that con- uh, connection with these animals. Cause they're not the beasts, you know, Little Rider had lied. You know, the three little pigs had faulty construction. So, like, that's okay. 
And how did, or I guess getting back to what I was going to say before, the other animals that I've seen you work with, is that somewhere else? Or, um, yeah, how do you get those interactions with those animals? Um, so if you're talking about like the raccoons or maybe the bobcat. And yeah, it seems like native wildlife that. Yeah, native wildlife. Um, so I am, uh, as well as Wolf Creek habitat um with just wolves and foxes um i have been in um over a year and a half now with a um organization the program that is run out of um a family's home in my hometown cincinnati they do educational outreaches for like parties or corporate events or schools and we'll go and educate um with a whole plethora of animals and i'm talking we have exotics so we have reptiles we have invertebrates we have mammals and birds we have them all across the board um some of our you know our, our stars would be um hunter our bobcat he is eight months old now we do have ralphie the raccoon he's eight months as well um we have a groundhog we got two skunks um and uh, an opossum um those are our natives. But then we have like chinchillas, we have ferrets, we have tortoise species, um, seven or eight different species of tortoise, the um, uh, several snake species, and we've had tegus, we've had a, um, we've had a dwarf caiman before, um, stuff like that. So I, I just work with them. And it's funny, that's um, how I met this couple. Um, they're um, late 30s. They actually came to Wolf Creek. And uh, interacted with the wolves, and I overheard them talking about their Egyptian fruit bats that they, you know, they have. And I was like, "Say what?" <laughs> <laughs> and then I actually got their information, and I've been working with them since. It's really cool how we get connected from other facilities and and just all that stuff. Um, so that's what you've probably seen, uh, as well as uh, in my hometown here, it, well, in my town now in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I am a certified wildlife rehabber. I'm working to obtain my licensing sometime next year, um, but I am a uh, junior rehabbing volunteer. I think that's right. Um, at Second Chances Wildlife in Louisville, Kentucky, um, and we have a beaver. Uh, his name is Justin Beaver. Uh, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. I cringe, but it's funny. Um, and as well as a fox, and we raccoon, and we do raccoons, opossums, skunks, um, small brown bats. I think silver-haired bats. I'm not much on a bat species per se. Um, and but we do rehabbing for those species, and that's a lot of do. How do you have time? You just said like four different things. Where do you make time for all of this? I, as well as me having my own reptiles, and I'm in my reptile room right now. <laughs> um, I don't have a lot of time, <laughs> but I, I make time as much as I can. Like Wolf Creek, I'll go. That's once a week. Um, Second chances is once a week. The Zoo for Adventures, that's the place up in Cincy with like the raccoon and the bobcat. Um, that's just whenever they have a, um, a a party or an event. So that might be twice a month, maybe. But I'm still like I'm. I guess I'll call for that. So how far is Cincy? Uh, Cincinnati from Louisville, Kentucky is about an hour and forty minutes. Well, it's not bad. No, nah, it's not too bad. And my family's back in Cincy and stuff, so. And I kind of make a day. So I'm going with the wolves tomorrow. That's about two hours north of where I'm at. And then it'll be like 35 minutes cutting from Brookville, Indiana, where the wolves are, to Cincy. Say hi to the fam. Hang out for a while. And then I'll be back here later in the evening. Gotcha. That's still a lot to me. <laughs> uh, yeah. I have a good car for that. So that makes, <laughs> that makes the world better. 
And can we talk a little bit about the process, how, at least, I guess, in your state, how it works to become a wildlife rehabber? Yeah, um, so it's really cool. There is a program that's online uh, that you can sign up for. Uh, it is through the International, IWRC, International Wildlife Rehabilitation Council, so IWRC. Um, and you can just you, you sign up. And then um, there are classes, usually two-day classes, um, kind of, I guess, being held at certain areas in the States and in Canada um, that will we'll hold the class. So you have classroom days and you have hands-on days with some of the animals. They're post-mortem animals, but um, so you get a sense of the medical aspect of it. But so we actually, we as in um, three other friends and myself, we actually are from Louisville. We went down to Mary, Kentucky, the University of Mary or Mary University, whatever it is. Uh, they hold it. Um, nothing twice a year, maybe three times a year. And you go through the classes. Um, there's a big textbook that we study for it and everything like that. Um, take the prior to the exam. We work on um, animals that, like I said, the postmortem. But um, there's bird species, so you kind of learn how to um, inject subcutaneous fluids into, you know, the um, skin and how to um, wrap a bird's wing if it has a broken wing up. Um, rehabbers, technically, you know, they don't really do the veterinarian stuff, right? So rehabbers, you take the animal, you basically um, get it. Um, you know, patched up as best you can and then take it to a veterinarian that handles the actual procedures to fix the animal. And then you get them back and then you rehab them. You always monitor fluid intake, food, um, uh, fecals, all that kind of stuff. And then you kind of decide when uh, the animal is ready for being released again. So that's kind of the rehabbing aspect of it. But there's there's medical stuff, but not like a veterinarian medical stuff. And is the rehabber responsible with financing this <laughs> um certain states actually uh will uh, fund it so in kentucky uh i don't know the acronym or the actual organization but in kentucky um and i can vouch for this myself i'm rehabbing a black rat snake currently um that was caught in a friend's basement and i'm like don't kill it um so it has like a little infection in the um left lower lip as well as a little um it's a little cut infected, but I mean, he's doing good. He ate for me. Um, but so the funding actually comes from some type of wildlife, like Kentucky wildlife um, organization. So the funding, so I didn't actually, I didn't have to pay for it, any veterinarian stuff. Even if it was my state, the facility, the animal hospital that I work at, um, I didn't have to pay for anything. So I was like, All right. Uh, <laughs> whereas if I would take my dog in, then, you know, I get discounts, but it's not free. Right. So that's awesome. I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know, like, the resources where they were pulled from. But mm -hmm. so as far as being a rehabber, are you working with oftentimes like a lot of birds? Because it seems like something that you focused on before. Um, Actually, the birds, we the only winged animals we do are bats. Um, the facility that I'm at, they don't do birds. They don't do any raptors or any type of songbird um, or any waterfowl, which is kind of like I don't mind that because I don't like birds that much because I don't like beaks. Um, <laughs> beaks, beaks hurt <laughs> bad. Um, I'd take teeth and claws every, every day, uh, any day. Interesting. Uh, huh? Interesting. I've never heard that. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, so the Zoo Pro Adventures place that I volunteer at um, do that at outreaches. They have macaws. And if you know anything about macaws or there's large birds, 
they're very smart and they only pick like one person they like ever. None of those birds like me. <laughs> they try to bite me all the time and they have bit me and it does not feel good. Um, whereas I've been like nipped by some of the wolves before and it's just, it's like a flea bite, you know, they're not, they're just telling me, you know, get out of the way or get out of my enclosure or whatever. You're, you're, you know, you're taking your sweet time laying straw down in the mud, you know? Um, and that bruises, but it doesn't like, it won't take your finger off <laughs> like a bird beak. Um, so yeah, I'm not, I'm a big on birds. <laughs> we've had multiple times during the show where we've had a guest and you hear like, what sounds like screams from the background. They're like, oh, yeah. my bird knows I'm here and they just want me. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the reason for not liking birds, just the noise. I just <clears throat> That's another thing, too, is those birds just, they never, they, t- they scream <laughs> every single day. I can't even handle it. That's why I love my reptiles. They don't make noises. <laughs> They're silent. So as far as rehabbing, I mean, do you get to deal with a bunch of reptiles or do you hope to get to deal with a bunch of reptiles? I hope to. Um, we have a couple of Eastern box turtles um, that we are rehabbing right now. I think one of them won't be ever um, released because it was hit by a lawnmower and um, mm. like it's you know, one of its shell. The whole scoot actually was like chopped off basically. So um, it was quite exposed. But now um, that bone has grown where it would have been open before. But it, it's still, it's kind of soft. So it's really weird. Mm. That, that's kind of one of our ambassador um, Eastern boxes, but we do have, there is a sulcata, like that's not a local species, so she stays. <laughs> um, she doesn't really get a whole lot of reptiles. Um, the owner of Wildlife, uh, Second Chances Wildlife, she doesn't know a lot of the reptile stuff, but I have a friend down here and myself, um, which will be probably leading more of um, more reptilian in, uh, intakes, actually. So she's excited to do more with that. Yeah, and I feel like I see all the time people bringing in turtles or something after they've been run over. Very rarely have I seen anyone bring, you know, a, a snake to a uh, to a rehabber at all. Not often, actually. That black rat that I'm uh, fostering or rehabbing is just because um, it's, it wasn't part of Second Chances. Just friends of mine were like, "I don't know what to do with it." I was like, "I'll take, like, I'll take it in for now." release it in springtime when it's not like 30 degrees outside um (laughs) yeah that was going to be my my question i guess you get them right before brumation you know before they would you know go down to brumate and then what do you do with them i guess you got to keep them all winter right yep i'm gonna be keeping them all winter and as far as uh other reptiles you keep uh, what do you have behind you Um, i'm an eight-legged creature behind you oh my god (laughs) Um, yeah, I have invertebrates. So I have um, a rosehair tarantula right there. I guess you can see it, as well as a um, it's an ivory ornamental. That's more of my, I guess, ornate spider. I don't handle that one. That is potentially my worst bite case of one of the animals that I have. I don't want to get bitten by that. Um, have you been bit by that? No, I haven't. Um, knock on wood. Um, <laughs> Their venom is is really painful, <laughs> is what I've heard. Whereas like the my rose hair is just like a, a bee sting that you know bite. Um, yeah, she's not real friendly anyway. Um, I have let's see the snakes. Um, later this week I'll be intaking a um, full grown red tail boa actually from a friend of mine's at my animal hospital's like son in law or something like that. I forget. Her, but that'll be interesting. Um, 
And then the ones behind me, I have a, just a ball python and then a Dumeril's brown boa. Um, that's, I have two um, bearded dragons, and I have uh, an Argentine and a Colombian black and white tegu and a savannah monitor. Um, nice. So you're pretty much covering the uh, the gambit of things there. Yeah, I am. I know. Zero legs, four legs, eight legs. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, so what was uh you said you started with the corn snake uh where did yeah. you go from there um so i i had uh the snakes for a while so i had the corn snake and then i had two corn snakes and then i was like you know what i kind of want to get a lizard and then i was doing my research and stuff so i kind of got into the leopard gecko um stream and uh i love my my desert or you know sub desert um savannah animals are a little bit easier to keep track of or keep um for me because um, they don't need that humidity stuff and all that, you know, crazy stuff that you have to watch, um, you know, keep it dry for them and they're good. Um, leopard geckos were fun. And then, you know, I saw at um, a reptile expo and this is before, you know, and don't do what I did, people. Um, don't just buy a Savannah monitor thinking that, oh, my God, it's so cute. Um, she is in my six by four by four. That's right next to me right now. Um, <laughs> they need a lot of space and they need a lot of room. Um, a lot of people mess up on that, but I'm big on the, um, like the Savannah monitor education, um, on social media right now, because she is, she'll be five in April. I think that's probably at least right now. I mean, and we've seen these things come in waves, but probably the most mishandled and misinformed as far as animals that we get that is so readily imported but are so hard to maintain a good captive population for or just are too expensive to get breeding pairs and therefore you know $25 imports are always going to be prevalent because why captive breed them because you, you need that six foot enclosure that you just talked about right right and that's the minimal um standards most people want to uh get others to do an eight by four by four which is definitely like it's better um i'm in an apartment right now so it's like once i get a house i'll be able to build all these enclosures in, in my basement or, or whatever room i'll have and it'll be it'll be better but um the husbandry that i have for right now is is good for temporary use um, they're not, they will not be in it long term. So when I get a house, hopefully next year, um, they'll be in nice big wooden enclosures, um, with the correct, you know, with perfect humidity and substrate depth and everything like that. So do you, oh. where do you fall as far as your beliefs, as far as husbandry, are you a bioactive monitor person, a naturalistic, uh, what um, do you do? I haven't, I'm, I'm, I haven't really gotten to the bioactive stuff yet. Um, just because the, um, like I have glass tanks for things and I also have these things called grow tents. You can kind of see one like right here for me. Um, they're primarily used for people to grow plants indoors. Um, but the reptile world has... Well, everyone at home, that's what you grow your weed in. That's a... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I thought it was a that's foosball what... table. I don't know. Why. <laughs> there's a little window down here. My <laughs> Colombian black and white tegus in there. <laughs> no, that's one of the tents. That's the uh, four by thirty by thirty inch, I think. Um, my Colombians in there, but it's not. They're, they're cheap. Get them on Amazon. Um, people in the reptile world have retrofitted them, put them sideways. 
um, put a tarp down, tape the sides of the tarp up um, so they can't get out of any like random holes or stuff that are in the grow tents where you would put like lights and wires through. Um, and then they hold humidity amazingly. Um, they're supposed to for the plants uh, <laughs> <laughs> and stuff. So that's what I've been using because I'm in an apartment. Um, can't really make a big old wooden enclosure and something like this. I'm leaving in X amount of time. So, yeah, yeah I think that's I something that way that someone <laughs> recently chose to do in our house. I think that's something that we're always fighting for, like, especially you know, where, where we're at in our life too, is we've moved like three or four times in a row and, yeah. and building those giant permanent enclosures is just kind of a hard commitment to make when you're, you know, when you're bouncing around a lot. Right. It is. Yeah. We still make an eight foot thing in our house. Yeah. Yeah. So I finally, I finally decided I was going to make, you know, the one cage that I've been talking about forever, the one, yeah big gauge that i don't know maybe we could move or couldn't move and uh it's just so large we don't know where we're gonna put it yet really but we'll figure it out yeah it's part of the fun okay so what do you um as far as uh enclosures uh besides the the grow tents and stuff like that like did you build the the savannah monitors or is he also in a grow tent oh right now uh she is still in a grow tent she's in that six by four by four um, at my previous residence when I first got here, so I've only been in my place of living for since June, so whatever that is, seven months or so, um, six months. And uh, before that, for the first three years, um, I actually did, I built a wooden six by four by four. Um, she had about a foot and a half of substrate to work with. Um, and that was, it was, it was awesome. So definitely want to get back into a house um, into, you know, building the enclosures that they should be in, you know. Just for, you know, the correct everything. Because I want these, I mean, I try to spoil my reptiles as best I can. But, you know, with how much room, with how little room I have and finances and stuff, it's hard. Have you gotten into any of the, you know, enrichment or training that you can do with uh, some of the lizards? Um, I, uh, Vega is my Savannah monitor and I had point trained her in the past. Um, basically just had a... I, drew a circle, a little red dot on a piece of paper, and I had her, you know, she had to walk up and poke it with her nose, and then I'd give her, you know, her food. So she learned that. I haven't done that in, like, two years. She was young when she did that. So I don't know if she still remembers it, but um, other than that, just a lot of socialization um, because there is the um, Kentucky or the Southern Indiana Breeders Expo, which is, like, one of the reptile shows that are in our town. Um, and I've been there with one of my other friends down here. Um, we do education with our animals. Um, I have several care sheets uh, written up of common reptiles that you'll find in the trade um, that we give to people just at the shows. And it's like, hey, you know, this 12-year-old Bobby got a bearded dragon baby. Like, here's a care sheet, mom. Like, make sure you do it right. <laughs> yeah. And so that must be, I mean, that must be a huge thing with tegus and savannah monitors and stuff oh, like yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Proper husbandry and enclosure and socializing. Like the Colombian, like you, like everybody knows about the Colombians with golden tegus. They're not very, they're very temperamental. Um, so I try to work with them. He's flighty. Thankfully, he's not bitey. But my Argentine, she's, uh, she's sweet as sugar. So like, um, I'm definitely going to work with her more. Uh, so when she gets real big and stuff, I'll be able to take her out to um, the educational outreaches that I do. Um, and, uh, you know, ooh and ah for the kids and stuff like that. 
And that seems to be like the generalization, right? That the Argentines are generally the more laid back. Mm-hmm. Especially females. <laughs> oh, so there's a, there could be a difference between the sexes as well. Mm-hmm. Just in general. I mean, they, they're really smart little lizards. Um, so, and with that comes personalities. So um, they can have certain personalities, but as long as you work with them, even, I think even if, if there are males, you, as long as you work with them at a young age, they'll turn out to be really good. And I pretty much stand by any kind of animal that you would work with. Um, if you work with them at a young age and work with them often and, you know, fight through those teenage years that some of these lizards can have, some snakes can have, you know, they're going to be really good animals to use for, you know, education or just in general, nicer to people. <laughs> so <clears throat> you work with such a wide variety of animals. Are do you have a favorite or at least like fa- like group of it, like mammals or reptiles or stuff like that? Like, are you partial would, to one? I would say I have a favorite in like each kingdom per se. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. So like my favorite type of bird species are the bearded vultures. Those are the ones that like their diet is primarily bone. Um, if you've never heard of that before, definitely Google that because those things are wild. Um my favorite like reptile, I am partial to the monitors because they're they're large, they're intelligent. Um, they just look like you know little baby Komodo dragons basically. They're they're so cool. Um, I mean mammals, I love wolves, um, but there's are like carnivores. So I have a favorite herbivore, and I love pangolins. You know the world's most trafficked animal. Um, so that's kind of where you know you have a you know out of fish. I love sharks. You know I kind of have I can't really zone in on one per se. I have them favorites in everywhere. <laughs> Is there any animal that you haven't worked with that you'd love to work with? I hmm, I would love to work. I don't know. I'd love to work with more native like hoofstock animals. It'd be really cool to work with like moose or elk you know there's big ones as long as they don't like you know trample you to death or anything like that um that'd be so cool to just be up close because you've never really seen a moose or elk uh, like a bull elk up close before you don't understand how massive they are i mean full-grown like bull elk can push to uh, like 400 pounds um and they're they're tall moose um they're taller and they're bigger than horses like people don't understand how immense these animals are out west until you get real close to them. <clears throat> yeah, those are like our big charismatic animals where, you know, everyone looks to Africa and in and, and some parts Asia and stuff like that. And yeah. we have all these amazing animals here. That people you know, we, just overlook often. It's like we have so much cool stuff. How about we help to conserve these guys here, you know? Speaking of that, okay, I have to talk about two animals I do not find cool, but I'm trying to be better. Um, you brought up skunks and opossums earlier. Yeah. <laughs> I just, it's so hard to find it in my heart to love them, really? but I would love to hear more about them and your experience working with them. Definitely. Um, like I said, two animals that are also very uh, misunderstood just by the general public. Um, skunks, there are four different species of skunks. Primarily what we see are the striped skunks um, in our area in the Midwest, um, in my area, I guess. I don't know exactly where you guys are from. Um, but 
they give a lot. They have plenty of warnings before they actually spray you. Um, it takes a whole seven days for them to re uh, reload um, their, their spray glands again. So that is a last ditch resort if they if you are going to get sprayed. And by, by then they've they they do this little like crazy pounding with their front legs. Um, they have the tail up and they're curling. They make themselves look bigger. Um, they don't really have too many sounds. They don't really make a lot of sounds. They'll do like chirping, kind of screeching, kind of things. It's really weird. Um, but if, you know, a lot of people's, their dogs don't heed those warnings. So of course the dogs get sprayed, right? Um, it is, it's sulfur something. I can't remember exactly. That's what that smells from. Um, but yeah, it's not fun. And the skunks that we work with, um, that are released again. Yeah. We, they keep their scent glands. So we try not to get sprayed by them. And have you. I haven't, no, but they have sprayed in the house before, like the facility that it is. It's like a retrofitted, like really nice house retrofitted as a rehabbing center. Um, and literally I walked in once and I'm like, <laughs> it's the worst thing ever. And like you smell it if a car hits one on the highway, you'll smell it right when you drive by. Time's up by 10, and that's what the smell really is. In a house. Uh-huh, in a little house, and uh, that's awful. It's, so we open all the windows, and we have the central vacuum, try to shoot it out this, you know, the roof and stuff, and it's, uh, um, but skunks are cool. Um, not quite, like, my interest, really. Um, raccoons are little terrors. Um, See, again, Huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah um opossums though i i really do enjoy um being that their lifespan is one to two years in the wild uh in captivity you can get five it's really rare they just don't live real long um that's because they have a lot of predators in the wild um you'll get owls you'll get canines so like coyotes will get them i mean wolves will get them too in certain areas but those are found um bobcats mountain lions these things get eaten by everything unfortunately and that's because they play a possum and that don't, <laughs> doesn't work. <laughs> you know, some animals are like, oh, I don't care. I'll still eat it, you know? So <laughs> that's the case, but some cool fun facts is that like these guys, they're, they're omnivores. They're primarily scavengers. Um, so they eat, you know, decaying plant and animal matter. Um, they eat bugs, they eat ticks, they'll eat 40,000 ticks a season. So that, um, just opossums alone actually keep the risk of a lot of, um, tick-borne diseases to us too, down like Lyme disease. Um, nobody wants to get Lyme disease. Um, and just the fact that, um, you know, they're, they very rarely contract rabies. Their uh, internal body temperature is you know, from 94 to 97, which rabies has to actually proliferate in 98 or 99 and above. So there's been like two or three documented cases of like opossums in the last 40 years, I think, that have had rabies out of the millions wow. of opossums that are out there. So it's pretty cool. They're really, really, I mean, they're really useful in just the ecosystems themselves. And did I hear you say that you work with them at the rehab place and at the place that does like events? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So what so, like are people's normal reaction when you bring out the skunks and the opossums? At- um, most people think are skunks. So at the Zoo Pro Adventures, the outreach center, most people think our skunks are badgers first. Um, it's kind of funny. Those skunks that we have were born in captivity, so they're not the, the black and white. Um, one is a uh, lavender, and one is a chocolate. So, well, so these are like mutations of skunks. Um, so the fur trade. 
um, primarily in the fur trade are skunk, um, skunk. Oh, what are the other ones? Let's see, uh, like skunks, foxes. Foxes are real big in the fur trade. So um, that's where you get those morphs. You've seen a white fox, right? Yeah. Or those, that's actually uh, that's man-made. Like that, you can't find that in the wild. Uh, so our skunks were actually born in a fur farm, but like the coats that they have um, wouldn't have been good for money for their pelts, for their coats. So they are sold privately. It's kind of so. Like, I mean, where are these like skunk? I never really thought about this. The the skunk and. And like yeah. the the fur farms, the raccoon fur farms and stuff. Yeah, um, I mean there are places that just breed raccoons and skunks and stuff for pets in general. Um, there is a couple that um, I don't know exactly where they're at, but they're in Ohio. They're in like eastern Ohio somewhere where we got our skunk. That's where we got our bobcat. That um, private ownership breeding. Most of those places that. Um, will sell those animals have to be you have to be registered as an educational you can't be private usually though some people were like oh i'm getting the money you take the animal whatever so it's it's a shady world but i know that the places that i work with are very reputable <clears throat> so it's something to where not every state you can have a pet skunk correct. can you correct yeah that's a state by state kind of thing just because they are native species there's rules and regulations. You might have to get certain permits or a couple permits for these animals. But like in Indiana, you know, most of the time, if you're going to be out in the woods somewhere, you can kind of get away with owning a raccoon or something, you know? So there's always that too. <laughs> and you just really want that raccoon. With the, <laughs> well, yeah, he just needs something to pick his hair when he's, you know, drinking his coffee, reading the newspaper. <laughs> so... Uh, um, skunks and raccoons. I had a question. I totally forgot it. Compare after. their hair. I know it's a super <laughs> random skunks question. Are, skunks are super soft. Like, I can't even describe it because, like, nothing that I've ever felt man-made felt like a skunk's, like, fur. They're just super silky, real long fur, soft, cottony, but, like, not... Is there a breed of dog that's similar? Um, a, a freshly groomed... Like, um, what a big white saw. Especially groomed Pyrenees probably would be the best. But even in Pyrenees, is still just a slightly wiry touch um, compared to that fur. Now, raccoon fur is, is wiry and, like, it's soft, but there's that wiry overcoat that they have. Um, it's, it's the fact that raccoons are so gelatinous, like, in general, that, it, like, it gives them their softness, I guess. They're just very... Yeah, they just always, they don't, yeah, they're not lean, muscular, athletic, (laughs) but they are somehow, they're just fat and athletic. Yeah, yeah, like they can contort themselves to fit through like four inches, like they can fit themselves in a four inch hole. It's just the craziest thing. But they're so, (laughs) they squeeze on by, they're like a cat, they're just like this, they're water, they're just made out of water. And do these, that's what I was going to ask before, do the pets for the skunk, or the skunks for the pet trade, do they have these glands taken out, or do they still have the scent glands? Nope, they get taken out. So our skunks, um, they, they don't have their scent glands. Um, it's a process, It's a procedure that's as easy as uh, spaying or neutering a dog. It's just back there near the, uh, the anus. <laughs> so it's pretty easy to do. 
And I'm assuming those people who breed it, I mean, are trained to do that, or are they bring it into like a vet all the time, or? Um, I think usually they work with a vet to have it um, surgically removed, like officially and professionally. I don't think these people just like breed a, a skunk and be like, "Oh, I can do it." I don't know. I, think, oh, I know oh. some people. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know. maybe if they had that background, they might do it. I don't know. I just, veterinarian professionals do it. <laughs> can't say anything because we breed snakes but in my head i'm like i just can't even imagine the are you saying the skunk girls. guys or uh, what's wrong I'm, with being a skunk breeder it's just such an interesting choice but also we breed snakes so i have yeah. no room to talk but it just seems so different <laughs> and i don't get the appeal what if you could just have like a herd of skunks come in the door Skunks are honestly, they make really good, nice pets. They're, I mean, the fact that, I mean, they like to dig, so just don't get like shag carpet because they're going to dig it all out. Um, but they're not, I mean, they have really poor eyesight. So you just got to be real slow in front of the face so they know not to like just bite something. Um, <laughs> otherwise, they're very friendly. They're, you know, you just grab them, plop them, you can hold them, you know, they're just here snipping you outside and all that stuff. So, I mean, they're really, really sweet animals. Do they have any type of like defensive nature to them? I mean, besides the obvious ones that you kind of went over. Um, the ones in captivity, they just, they're like a dog. I mean, they're like a really fluffy, colorful dog. <laughs> you know, they're not defensive. They've been around people, their owners all their life. So they, you know, they're used to it. Um, but just the, the wild ones, there's other defensive mechanisms I mentioned before. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just so, curious what like a, a, a skunk bite would be like. Oh, they have very sharp teeth. Yeah, it's not fun to get bit by them, but I would say, I mean, their teeth are very, it's like, if you know what a ferret's mouth is like, you know, very kind of sharp E. Um, oh, I like, like to that not know what a ferret's mouth is like. <laughs> yeah. You're such a four-legged hater. Oh, I'm so, yeah. That's <laughs> a, I fully admit it, but I'm, I'm learning. I'm, what does... I'm a knowledgeable hater. Now, ra raccoons in the wild eat trash. Skunks in the wild, I don't know what the hell they do. What do they eat in captivity? Um, we give them a dog and cat food mix as well as fresh veggies and some fruits. And we give them too many because then they, it just runs through their bodies for some reason. Um, and it's never fun to clean up. Um, but they're they're very, I mean, they're, they're omnivores, so they'll eat anything. They're very opportunistic. Uh, in the wild, skunks primarily go for, like, roots and beets, um, onions, um, carrots. They'll go through your garden, for sure, um, dig up everything. Um, they'll go for, like, eggs, you know, bird eggs, um, quail nest on the ground, right? So they'll go for quail eggs. Um, they'll go for, like, little lizards if they can get them, small snakes or um, mushrooms. They'll go for berries, anything they can really get their hands on. Wow. Little foragers. Yeah, yeah. And then what do you what do you feed the raccoon in captivity? He gets um, a cat food uh, as well as uh, half a banana in the morning and half a, the other half at night. Um, and then scraps. Like I, I'll have dinner. So I mean, he got like I finished like a couple things of pizza, and I gave him like a like not a whole piece of pizza, but I gave him some pizza, some chips. I mean, when he was I mean, trash, trash. <laughs> yeah. No, he tried to get in some of my trash cans, and it, if you tell them no, they get real mean. So uh, real, real hissy at you and stuff. So yeah. 
Oh, so they have like some type of personality, like oh god, yeah. They're super interactive like that. Oh yeah, yeah. And he was young, so he's still learning his um his behaviors and stuff. But um, just think of a raccoon as a ADHD toddler on cocaine with teeth and claws. That is what a raccoon is. <laughs> Every single human being's worst nightmare. <laughs> yes, basically. I had him for a week, and, and that was because the owners went down to Florida for, to Disneyland and uh, Disney World. And um, I was like, yeah, I can watch I can watch Ralphie. Why not? You know? And by like Thursday, I'm like, when are you getting back? Like, <laughs> do you have to like, how do you raccoon proof the house? Um, it is very difficult. Very difficult. He got in everything. Like when he had his his cages kennel, so he was in that when I was not home. So if I was working, he'd be in there. But I let him out, roam around, and stuff. One hundred and ten percent supervision on one like at any minute he's out. Um, because I mean I was making dinner for like us actually one night, and then I I didn't hear anything, and I was like, where is he? What did he do? <laughs> turn around and he got into some of my like my plants and he, he dug out one of my plants and it just the mulch and shredded plant everywhere. And I'm like, what are you doing? So I would never try to grab him out and he gets all like, he like hissy at me and stuff. And I'm like, we are not like doing you're, this. Like you're disturbing his life. Like, uh-huh. yeah. yeah, they're, they get in everything. Eventually they do calm down. There is a raccoon at second chances wildlife. His name's blackjack and he's probably 10 years old, but he is, slow and calm and just he'll roll over and just scratch my belly that's all he wants and he's great <laughs> so um at the rehab facility do the the owners do they like live in that house or is it like separate from where they actually they live? did um it's the, just the lady um she did run it out of her house before um two years ago she actually bought another house and they um renovated it to be like the facility right um, so it is like it is a house but like you walk in and the basement has i mean the whole almost 80 percent of the house is all like the big cages the, the big um enclosure barred enclosures whatever um with whatever animals they might be so we do have our ambassador animals um, a raccoon. We do have a hedgehog and um, a couple opossum, you know, opossums that can't be re-released for the various reasons. Um, there is like a quarantine area for uh, intakes in case they do have like distemper or parvo or something. Ticks, fleas, fleas are awful. Um, but yeah, so she used to run out of her house, and but she has her own place now. Um, even with like a a, a barn ish area that we've renovated to be in the educational center, which is really cool. It's on property. So is she getting money based off donations, also? Donations, and um, there is, I, I believe, one or two organizations that run through the state as in a rehabbing facility that she gets funds for. I'm not sure exactly. Um, I've been with them just uh, like a month and a half, actually. So. Oh. Oh my gosh, you know so much for only a month and a half. Yeah. So how do you find all these people? <laughs> uh, a lot of connections. Um, a lot of just reaching out to different places. Um, friends through word of mouth. Uh, Instagram sometimes. I meet people through there. Um, and I've gone out and traveled to other facilities and places 
Um, I have a friend of mine who her and her father run a facility that does education with um, all sorts of animals as well up in uh, basically just south of Chicago. Um, that's really cool that what she does up there. Um, and I don't know, I just, I just meet more people and the, the webbing gets bigger and the tree grows and stuff like that. So it's really cool. I love the animal world. I have to ask since you're in Kentucky, have yeah. you been to the Kentucky, Kentucky wildlife zoo, right? No, or reptile zoo. Yeah. Kentucky reptile zoo. I have not yet. I have heard about it though. I want to, when it gets warmer again. Maybe I think like, Slade is kind of like out in the middle of nowhere for everyone. Yeah. That sounds like, do you, do you have a connection with them? Yeah. So we just had them on the pod. It's uh, Kristen and Jim Harrison. We had them on the podcast a while ago and just their story um, and the things they do for venomous animals. is just okay. very, uh, just extremely unique to say the least. Yeah. Too. And I just feel like it'd be right up your alley just because of all the stuff that you're into and everything like that. Sure. I, I mean, I've heard of them. I definitely want to, uh, look into visiting at some point. I love just meeting other people in their facilities and just learning more. Like you said, venomous. I don't do a lot of venomous stuff. I don't do any venomous stuff actually because I don't want to go to the hospital. But <laughs> um, but I have some friends that are online through various social media and they do. Um, they'll go live on other uh, platforms and they'll educate about venomous. And I'm I'm learning venomous species and stuff too. So it's really cool just to make those connections as well. And do you have like any degree or anything or are you straight up just the salty relationships? Yeah, yeah um, I have an environmental science degree, um, a minor in geography, a minor in biology. And like my environmental science degree was a focus on ecological conservation. So that's what most of my classes were like a lot of um, uh, I don't know, for example, work in like um tree tagging and you know emerald ash borer beetle like removal ash tree removal stuff like that um that would help ecosystems as a whole not really focusing on animals per se um but where they are from but was this always kind of the goal yeah it kind of was i really wish and a lot of people do you know regret the path they took in college and they wish they did something else and looking back, I really did wish I got a biology degree and maybe focused more on zoology or animal sciences, something like that, that would just benefit me in the long run. Because professionally, I want to work somewhere where, you know, I'm either ecological conservation, where I'm hiking the woods, doing water treatment or water testing, soil sampling, you know, tree tagging, that kind of stuff, or working with wildlife rehabbing or education of animals and certain exotic or native species. So I'm like two paths. I need to find one somewhere. Um, and it's taken a sweet time finding it. <laughs> Do you hope to open up your own facility one day? I have thought that, and that's actually why I didn't move down to Louisville from Cincinnati. Um, a friend of mine down here, her name's Jordan. Um, she, her and I had that thought of, of opening up our own uh, reptile rehabbing center. We actually do have a group um, unofficially, officially, um, but we are somewhat taking over um, a group here in the city called the Kentucky Herpetological Society. And that's primarily what we're going to use now as our basis for um, what we want to do. So we won't have like a facility per se, but we'll be doing our education through the Kentucky Herp Society. Oh, that's awesome. And we definitely we definitely have some people to refer you yeah. and vice versa because, yeah, there's some 
some really great snake people in general in in Louisville. Yeah, definitely are. And I'm meeting more and more every week. Oh, sorry, I didn't say it you right. You pronounced Louisville. Louisville. Yeah, I was saying it wrong too. Don't get you know. <laughs> I I kept saying Louisville too, and everybody's down here is like Louisville. I was like, my bad. <laughs> I dropped some sounds. Yeah, Louisville. sorry. Yeah, <laughs> um, shoot. Oh, okay. So since you brought up social media in our last um, little bit of time, let's kind of uh, talk about that because that is yeah. how we found you is through social right. media. So when did you start? I mean, obviously TikTok's not been around forever, but when did you start the social media aspect and everything? Um, I guess I've had Instagram for several years now, and that was just kind of like pictures of my life and this, that, and the other. And I kind of, um, within the last maybe year and a half, two years, got more of like I could make something maybe of myself on social media and get the education that I want to put, um, you know, here out to people. Um, so that's where kind of the Instagram came from. Um, so I'm just trying to kind of build up a following account on that more so to reach out. And I have people, uh, several people a week, if not a couple dozen or so, um, ask me all about, you know, this animal, that animal that they have, primarily reptiles, or people do ask questions about the wolves. Um, and, I, and I love it. I love I love teaching. I love educating. I love giving people um, the knowledge that they ask for. And, and I like having that knowledge, too. Um but I and I got on TikTok early um, through in the summer, I believe, and um, just for fun, my brother and his girlfriend were like, "You should get on TikTok. This is hilarious stuff on here." And I was like, "Okay, fine." And then I'm like, you know, I, I put a couple videos of like a couple animals, and like people really liked it. And I was like, "Oh, oh, <laughs> okay, hey." And then I could actually attach my Instagram to my TikTok, and I'm like, "Okay, people really like wolves." <laughs> a lot so um i've been i go live on tiktok um maybe once or twice a week and and i always reach out to more people than i do on instagram because i have almost two hundred fifty thousand people on tiktok now and i only have just over three thousand on instagram so it's a lot of fun i love meeting all these types of people and and having people ask me questions and it's not like a it's not an ego thing but it's like my biggest thing is having people, they buy reptiles or they want to own reptiles. As long as they have the proper education for the husbandry, for the diets and everything, I know that those animals will be better off um, with people. So that's kind of where I, I want these. I want those animals to live a happy, long life. But I want to help those people that own those animals do the right things, I guess. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, social media isn't, isn't used very well by people who zoos in particular, like zoological facilities don't really play well as far as like, they have a lot of PR issues to deal with. So they can't really put out any content or, you know, I guess it could be up to these smaller nonprofits who, I mean, you have a wolf, which I mean, if you work with like big cats or wolves or something that's super charismatic of an animal and people that are even the beaver that you posted got so many, he got so many views, yeah. you know, like people love Justin Beaver. <laughs> like, like it's like that can just reach so many more people. And I don't think I don't think people have caught on to that, at least in the in the wildlife sector, you know, zoological community and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely really interesting what the certain animals that people really hone into and, and what they, those animals, which animals get like big. Cause like I just posted one of, um, one of the foxes I work with and that was my biggest hit on TikTok. And I'm like, 
it's just a fox that's playing around gnawing on my arm. <laughs> like a normal day for me. Yeah, but I think that's that's the beauty of it is like um people well it's also nice to know that people get excited just to see what you do every single day. It should make you more grateful to to be able to do what you you know, what you do, right? Yeah, it is. It, it definitely, you know, just having those animals um, have such a, a positive feedback from people in a way that, you know, I love foxes. They're great. You know, not just people going, they kill my chickens, you know, well, I'm sorry. Uh, but like they're, they were here before we were and probably here way before we're gone. So, I mean, it's kinda, you have to respect. It's, it's all about mutual respect for any animal, whether it's domestic, exotic, wildlife, you know, native, whatever it is. And I would, I could imagine that, you know, a place like TikTok has a much younger audience and probably, you know, you're able to reach a young audience and those kids already like have, you know, often as a kid, you have that imagination that like, you know, for us as animal people at a certain age, you're, you got hooked by it and enthralled by dinosaurs or reptiles or animals in some kind of way. And you're able to be a catalyst to, you know, the young people on this app. Definitely. And that's why I, I do like the TikTok, um, just because I do reach that, that age, you know, younger kids who are, you know, they're pushing through elementary or high school and maybe they don't know what to do with their life, but they like animals. Maybe I can help them out with, leading them to a career choice where, you know, animals will be a part of what they want to do. Because there's there's dozens of different areas of the animal world they can work with. It's, you know, conservation, education, husbandry, you know, zookeeping. Um, you can do research. You can do, um, I mean, there's, there's so many different things you can do. So it's just, it's real cool. You know, people ask me, it's like, what can I do? Like, I'm, I'm 16 or I'm, I'm 18, about to graduate. I want to get in some type of animals thing. I'm like, well, you can do this, 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 and this, this. And they're like, oh, my God, I didn't know that. Like, <laughs> that kind of helps them to figure out what they want to do. Did you ever want to do zookeeping? I did. Um, I do. It would be really nice. Um, it's just that that little piece of paper you get from college does uh, a, a lot for you. And I didn't get like a zookeeping degree or anything like that. Plus a lot of the zoos, um, if you haven't been like volunteering or working part-time to get those connections with hours them, and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're, you're, they're not, an average Joe isn't going to come in and swoop position out with someone that's, you know, this zookeeper hiring knows this person for six years they're going to hire them in before you. So I understand that, Um, especially me being in Cincinnati, Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Gardens is like either number two or number three um, in the nation. So I'm like, I'm not getting there. (laughs) So it's just like, I kind of understand. I'm probably not going to get into a zoo per se, but other educational programs I might be able to make some type of career out of. But it it does seem that, volunteering you know you're volunteering right now i mean that has to be a staple of you know how you get your foot in the door places it's it is i mean that's what it is in the animal world if you want to make a career out of it which there's you're not going to get rich in the animal world and nobody will get rich in the animal world unless you're like a veterinarian like an exotic vet per se or fish vets apparently fish vets are paid a lot I don't understand that. I don't <laughs> well, it seems that. hard. You got to do everything yeah. underwater, man. That yeah. seems. <laughs> Especially for like a fish vet at an aquarium. I mean, that's like, 
Uh, Top notch money in the animal world. I don't do it for the money. Most people that are in the animal world don't do it for the money. They do it because they love animals. Um, yeah, it's just it's a lot of volunteering. So as much volunteering as you can put in, especially if it's if you try and get into a said zoo, work volunteering at said zoo. You know, go or just other programs like the wildlife ones, or just you know do your research. You'll find something somewhere. <laughs> And where do you hope as far as where your volunteer work is bringing you now? I mean, what are some of your plans in, in the future? Um, just to continue, really. Um, I'm hoping that at least with the uh, rehabbing, I'll get a lot of um, knowledge down, a lot of education throughout actually hands-on with the animals. That'll help me pass the licensing exam that I'll be taking hopefully next year for uh, my rehabbing license. Um, because there are uh, facilities, rehabbing facilities that hire for a job as a wildlife rehabber. Um, they're far and wide, but I mean, maybe sometime look into that, uh, hopefully as a career in the future. Um, but other than that, the zoo pro, um, it, that's, it's a lot of fun. I love the animals that I work with there. Um, it's all always a lot of fun. I've, I did recently a couple of weeks ago, I did a birthday party for a, I think the girl just turned four. Um, so a lot of little kids and a lot of parents that did not know what I brought them. They were like, what's going on? Um, but that was a lot of fun. You know, the, uh, the Bobcat Hunter, he took the show at the end. He's always my big finale. Um, they love him. He just climbs up all around me and he wants to just jump on the couches and, and pounce the little kids, which you know, I can't, can't do. <laughs> wants to pounce and jump on little kids, but we're not going to do that. Um, but it's just, it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy all the people that I have met through all the volunteering experience that I do. Um, I see them, I'm closer than to them than a lot of my like extended family and some of my friends. So, I mean, they're all family to me. It's, it's a lot of fun. It really is. And then what are kind of your future plans with, the the herb collection that you have going on? Um, to hopefully use, I mean, this is kind of, it's a hobby as much as I want to use them for education, maybe through the Kentucky Herb Society. Um, I know when I get settled in, I have a, a better job, a more consistent job. Um, maybe take up the VP of that. My friend Jordan has actually taken presidency of that come the new year. So maybe, um, take VP and just, you know, just do the education because that'll be a program that, um, we do have active memberships for and we get um we get money in because we do like field trips out to different places and stuff like that yeah is the the herb society there is it a long-standing herb society it's been around at least 15 to 20 years is what i want to say though um as of the past three or four years it's kind of gone down um the current president um, is, has been fighting cancer for a while. Um, he's a he's a fighter. He's he just he's got family, and he just recently moved to Tennessee. Um, that's where his chemotherapy is. So um, he just can't do it anymore. Um, he's a great guy. We do have other members in there that are um, the kind of crude, and they kind of feel entitled because they've been there so long should be higher up in it but we're trying to get new people in yes a younger crowd in but it's hard to do when these older guys are like kind of crude humor and stuff they're old humor it's just like stop talking <laughs> <Get> <laughs> <that. laughs> yeah, so we're working so, on it. are you deep into the like <clears throat> hobbyist world of reptiles you know like are you in the facebook groups are you doing this and like um are you deep into it 
I would say, yeah. Um, I've been in the hobby for nine years now. And what I want to focus on, um, especially when I get a house and large enclosures built, I want to focus more on the large lizards. Um, I like to call the the big three, um, which are the monitors, tegus, and iguanas. Though I'm not really big on iguanas. I like my terrestrials. So um, I love tegus. I've, one of my dream reptiles was an Argentine that are black and white. So I'm like, yay, got one now. I'm so happy. Um, and I love the monitors. They're they're so intelligent. And and like Vega, my Savannah monitor, you know, being even a small to mid-sized monitor lizard, she knows my face. She she knows when I'm here, when I'm about to feed her. She comes out and says hi and stuff. She's very personable. Um, and I like the fact that I can educate and say, you get this type of reptile who's really social, who's sweet and docile. Um because most people who have these large lizards, they're they're very temperamental. And I like to say, hey, they're not, not always like that. You just have to put the hard work into it. And do you have any interest in going beyond, you know, Savannah, say that next level, the water monitor, or if you were so brave, maybe a croc monitor or something I, like that? My end goal would be a black throat um, okay. or a rough neck. Those are my two, like, big hulky monitors i really want real bad <laughs> but that's an end game i want to have a place i want to have funds i want to have the room for it um i understand you know a lot of people they go into reptiles and it's really easy to get into a hoarding position when you have mm-hmm. reptiles. i know i'm like i don't want to do that because if you get too many not enough room you're gonna forget to feed you're gonna forget to clean and i just don't want to do that i understand the amount of time i have is good enough for what i have right now <laughs> And that especially happens with like the social media stuff where people people get kind of into creating these videos of them like unboxing animals, which we have plenty of videos of me unboxing animals, but I didn't buy them to make a Just video about unboxing video. animals. Yeah. But, you know, right. you get caught into, oh, I want to show YouTubers now have Cyclora. So I get Cyclora. I get a giant iguana just to, you know put it because people like that and i'm gonna have a retick because you know youtubers have that i'm gonna have an anaconda and yeah you gotta like hit all the bases right definitely um i don't know i i have what i have and and i enjoy all these guys and i love using them to to educate and i know my boundaries i know what i'm good at and when i still have to like learn so not to self-promote but uh, you should definitely, anyone who's into monitors should check out our podcast with Corey Amar. Is that how you pronounce his last name? Um, and just listening to the enclosures and the amount of time he spent on his facility for his monitors. $150 monitor cage, or 150000 150, sorry. $150,000. $150,000. $150,000. Impressive. It's insane, um, just the amount he's worked with them, and it was a good podcast just to see all that. Or Brittany K also works with monitors yes, and stuff yes. like that, but just amazing, amazing animals that, yeah, you want to see taken care of correctly so that we can maintain the right to have amazing animals. Definitely, definitely. They won't go the way of the hundred percent wolf that I can't have in my living room. <laughs> <Yeah>. Damn <dinner. laughs> As far as where people can get in touch with you, Tony, um, where can they find you? Um, my Instagram. Uh, they can see this little 
thing right here, right? Yes, yeah. but there's the audio version won't be able to see it. So yeah. Okay. So um, Instagram is Tony's Tales and Scales. It's the same as my TikTok. Um, it's it's all you know spaced off by the little underscores. Um, you can find my Facebook, uh, Tony Siler. Uh, I'm sure you'll probably type it up my name uh, at the end here and everything like that. Um, just hit me up in the DMs. Uh, that's great. If you got questions for wolves, for reptile husbandry, um, for any local, you know, native species, anything that you'll find in your backyard, I probably know something about. Not the birds, but everything else that's on the ground. <laughs> for sure. And uh, we're gonna make ryan cox come play with the wolves yes we're gonna have to since like, we have a friend in the area we need to bring someone out just to play with wolves yeah. come visit me there i'm always there i mean definitely hit me up before you come just so i know i'm there and hopefully i'll be leading your guys in closure uh interaction and everything yes well um if anyone wants to get in contact with us port city pythons on instagram port city pythons on facebook and youtube and the website is portcitypythons.com um tony thanks again for coming on this was so enlightening <laughs> so many things i never thought i'd get to talk about um and learn about and definitely maybe one day go and see um for sure. awesome yeah thank you for having me this has been fun i love this of course thank you so much for being here and for everyone else thank you guys so much for listening i would love it if you guys could go and tell a friend about this podcast someone who loves animals or herps or conservation in general so uh thank you guys so much for watching we will catch you guys next week